you heard it here first. The YouTube management has political preferences for Scientology. They're in cahoots. They're boosting and pumping the Scientology project. So uh, that's that's pretty scandalous. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's weird. All right, Mark, welcome back to the podcast. I think you've been on before a couple of years ago now. Yeah, long while. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You've been a longstanding member of the community. You've always been a, you know, active contributor and you've done really interesting work over the past several years. You've been studying the YouTube algorithm pretty seriously as an independent researcher. You've done this in partnership with some academic scholars. You've also done this on your own and you've been doing this for many years now. So you recently published a study that I thought was very interesting and very important because it really pushes back on a narrative that I think has been very popular for a while. I think a lot of people still think this narrative is true. And, and I think it's fair to say that you've now shown this to be definitively false after, after several years of working on this and many different papers. So that's what I want to talk to you about this paper that you recently published. Let's start with what is the rabbit hole theory of YouTube or the radicalization theory of YouTube? Let's set the scene with what people have been saying for many years about this notion of how YouTube supposedly radicalizes people. What is that theory? Give us a steel man of it. It's the idea that um, YouTube to get people's attention, keep people on the platform will continually promote more and more extreme videos to keep your attention. And then that leads people down rabbit holes um, in terms of like they keep clicking on more extreme videos until the point that they're radicalized. And that was like, it's mainly promoted by, um, like left-wing media and some people like Tristan Harris, the documentary, the social media, I actually can't remember the name of it, but um, they're really concerned about right-wing radicalization in particular like that. And they see that as the reason why there's so much like anti-woke or like manosphere type stuff or QAnon, alt-right, that kind of thing. And how much evidence is there for this? Surely there are, are some ways you could cut the data where it might look like this. Give us what, what's the most generous representation of, of the data for this viewpoint. Um, it's quite popular on YouTube. So if you can compare like mainstream news and media compared to YouTube, you do much more, much more right wing. Um, I guess, I think if you're sensitive to it, like if you're, um, you don't like that kind of content you'll see sometimes see those recommendations and remember them so it's like when you look back at like the things you didn't like about the recommendations that's what you remember um there has been some studies that were quite it's a little bit old now uh, i think they're biased but they were looking at radicalization and uh, looked at like the videos people um, commented on and show that people were moving that direction but um, in that particular study they didn't look at the other directions people were going. So it was like, they were always going to find people moving that way because that's all they look for. Okay. Okay. Nonetheless, this narrative became very popular. A few years ago, this conception of YouTube's political implications became big news. So you were, for, there was a moment in time a few years ago, if people remember it, where everyone was talking about this. It was kind of a moral panic in a way. Um, and... Is that when you started looking into this? Yeah, yeah. It was, I saw, like, I didn't see any reason for them to be so confident that was the case. 
and definitely saw it as a moral panic. So I thought I'd look into it. And um, I also had like interest technically in actually showing that you could monitor the recommendations just as a software project. And I also wanted to do science in a way I thought, I thought would like um, be a bit more open. So I did everything uh, open source, shared all the data. Um, and like a bit different to academia, rather than focusing on publications, I kept a system that was live, that was constantly recording and took a lot of feedback from like uh, YouTubers themselves in terms of their categorizations. Um, some of them still don't like my categorizations. We can talk, talk about that as well. Well, why don't you lay out the logic of how you decided to design a study that could test this as definitively as possible? Walk us through the design and why this is the, the cleanest possible test you could come up with. Right. So from our previous study, we had about um, 14 different political categories where we, uh, I basically invented the categories and had a bunch of people label them manually, like channels, um, just by finding them in a variety of methods. So we then labeled them as a group. And then since then, uh, I worked with um, Sam Clark and he developed an algorithm to predict the categories of channels. And that's that's how we expanded it to be a much larger, larger channel data set. So that was like before this latest study, which is about personalization. So we took those categories and we created like um, personas for each of them. So each had a real YouTube login. Had to buy a bunch of SIM cards to actually create the accounts to do it. Jump through lots of hoops to try and get them logged in, keep them able to be logged in. And we basically got them to watch just political videos within their bubble, just in that political category until they had like a pretty big history. Um, so they represent like a, like a real bubble user, like someone with a clear signal about the kind of videos they liked. And these categories are basically the partisan right, the partisan left, or more fine, fine tuned categories. A little bit of those are two. Uh, let me just bring up the list. Non-political MSM, anti-woke late night show woke conspiracy yeah. that's pretty much it right yeah manosphere um, religious conservative socialist okay white identitarian so basically you made all of these fake accounts basically yep fake accounts built up the history just watching the videos that they like and then i got them to watch just a, just a sample of videos and they all watched the same videos over t over a few months and then we looked at the impact that that personalization had and the recommendations that were shown on the homepage and next to videos when they watch them. Um, so we found there was like a, a bubble effect. So seeing more videos within the category that they watched, especially on the homepage, um, they tended to go back to the channels that already watched. It's the biggest signal there. Uh, videos were less bubbly, like with more, the recommendations were more kind of random and to do with the videos itself rather than the person watching it, but there's a little bit of personalization there as well. Um, we found some channels, there was like some special channels like TED Talks in the Obama White House and the Church of Scientology, where all the recommendations would go back to their own channel, didn't matter who was watching it or what video it was on. It was just, hmm. they had a special case. Does that look like, um, what does that look like to you? Is that some kind of like hardwired, like something hard coded in the algorithm for political privilege or something? Yeah. I don't what, know why. What were like, the ones you found? Say them again. 
so just three of them were um, TED Talks. So if you go to a TED Talk video, you only get recommendations to other TED videos. Hmm. Uh, same with the Obama White House. and It's like Church strictly 100%. 100%. Yeah. Wow. So, th- so basically there's a secret cabal of Scientologists, Obamaists, and <laughs> TED Talkers that have some kind of like special privilege in the algorithm. Or could it just be something that's very specific and extreme about these cases that just leads the bubble effect to be uh, perfect? I- I think it's a special, it's hard coded because no one, nothing comes close to that. It's like really binary. That's pretty juicy. Like why would the Scientology have a privilege with the algorithm? I don't know. That stands out as being weird because most of the other ones were like uh, state TV channels or like uh, political organizations. All right, very folks. official. Uh, all right, everybody, you heard, you heard it here first. I hope this gets, cl- <laughs> I hope this gets clipped all over Twitch and YouTube. The YouTube management has political preferences for Scientology. They're in cahoots. They're boosting and pumping the Scientology project. So uh, that's that's pretty scandalous. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's weird. No one's um, come up with like a plausible reason. Hmm. Uh, something other interesting that we found was, um, so at my previous study, we saw a lot of ma- uh, benefits from mainstream for anonymous recommendations, like mainstream media, like uh, cable TV news and like um, other mainstream news. But with personalization, it was like um, that advantage went away completely. So it seems to be like a special case as well that if you're an anonymous user, they will um, promote mainstream media more often in the recommendations. So all of your test accounts were anonymous users? So I had one anonymous user, and that's what we, I'm comparing to, to look at the effect of personalization. Oh, oh I see. And basically all, all of the personas had way less mainstream recommendations than the um, anonymous user. I see. And so how many total fake accounts are you running throughout this research? Uh, 14, I think. 14. Okay. So just a few in each category. Uh, It sounds like just a couple in each category and then the one anonymous. One for each category and then... Oh, one. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Now, how are you making the choices though of what to watch next? Like how is that done in an automated way? Cause obviously in the real life case, there's going to be a human who's getting fed certain suggestions. Right. And so I feel yeah. like, I feel like a, a charitable account of the rabbit hole theory is that a human is going to be choosing the increasingly extreme content out of the suggested videos. And that's where, maybe the rabbit hole or radicalization effect takes place. So if you just have automated accounts, like how is that, how is the decision being made? Well, I guess um, we leave some room that like there could be radicalization depending on how humans behave. Um, but what we're showing is that like whether the algorithms bias or not, or favors particular things, we're not kind of like simulating real user behavior, guessing at what they would do. I see. So for, that, pe- for people who are not super familiar with YouTube, I think what you're referring to is that if you're watching a video on YouTube and you don't do anything, it's going to play another video regardless, right? So that's that's technically what the algorithm is telling you to watch next. And if you don't do anything, YouTube will literally decide for you what you're going to watch next. So that's what you're talking about, right? When you each step forward. Yeah, except we, we do record like the, t- the 10 up next videos. We don't just look at the first one. So it's not exactly the same as the autoplay. Okay. Oh, okay. And we also looked at the home the homepage 
as well. So you just kind of average out like the next suggested 10 or something. Yeah, we look at we look at the proportion of recommendations across the different categories and we compare um, what what the persona saw versus an anonymous user. Okay, great. So I think I think that sets enough of the scene and gives people a sense of the the basic parameters of the study. Now, tell us a little bit about the effect you find. Like, how would you summarize it? Um, how big are the effects? And specifically, kind of you know relate them to this dominant theory of of the rabbit hole expectation. Um, what we found was the the more um, extremist categories, like white identitarian. They didn't see that many self recommendations, and that's because um, YouTube actively reduces the amount of recommendations towards the type, the extreme types of content. The most bubbly um, category you had was late night talk show persona, but I don't. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're favored because there's so few but very large channels. I think that creates a really a much clearer signal. Than the other categories which are bigger so it's hard to say whether that's a bias right okay um in terms of what else we can say so there was the thing about um per personalization reducing the amount of mainstream news compared to anonymous user but that's not radical um, that's not radicalization that's just niche of you know that's just no getting what you like basically well, I guess I'm just correcting like the previous study because I would have said a lot how it's actually actively promoting mainstream, whereas now I think that they don't really have an advantage if you're just looking at, if you're actually looking at personalization. Right. In your previous study, you thought that maybe mainstream was being more pr promoted more aggressively. Now, yeah. now it doesn't look like that. Now I, that's right. Yeah. I got gotcha. wrong about that. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing is that there was a bubble effect. But I was trying to think of what the best way to compare it to, because obviously a bubble's not too bad. Just showing people what they want on your watch, you're going to get bubbles. So, but that's different than being more and more passionately obsessed with that's more right. more extreme yeah. versions. Yeah, and even that, like, um, it's about comparable. If you look at the bubbliness of voting of people that live within five, five miles of each other in America, it's it's a similar kind of ballpark amount of bubbles as. Any recommendations, if you consider equivalent to getting recommendations within your category versus without. Right. Okay. So if you step back from this, you know, what, what holistically does this teach you about YouTube that you didn't already know, or like, you know, what, what are the, maybe the larger social or political implications that, that you, you take from this as you step back and kind of think about everything you've learned over the years about the YouTube al algorithm? I'm not sure. Cause it's all kind of expected. I, I, I can't, I don't know what an important takeaway is really. Right. Well, so it sounds like basically, yeah, you're fine. Your findings pretty much, uh, validate the basic expectation that more or less these algorithms give P YouTube viewers, uh, more of what they want but it doesn't go deeper down a rabbit hole. If you have it really, if, if you are into right-wing politics, after a few weeks on YouTube, you're not going to be seeing like crazy white identitarian politics just because you've been watching some basic conservative uh, politics. Yeah. Like that dynamic does not occur. It's just, it tries to give you a little bit more of what you already show you like. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. I guess it's possible it could occur. Like um, there's actually other studies, I think, which 
shed light on this a bit better than mine. So there was a, um, a New York University study that um, they had real, real users with their own history login and just follow recommendations using a pattern. Um, and they didn't find a rabbit hole when they did that. So it was a bit more realistic. There was another study in 2021, which had a, um, they had access to web panel data. So like just browsing history of a representative um, set of Americans, I think it was about 300,000 of them. And they also didn't find any um, pathway to radicalization with that real data. So I think that's more definitive than mine. My, my latest study is mainly looking at kind of the mechanics of the personalization algorithm. But I think together they all paint a picture that's basically debunking the idea that that's what YouTube's doing. Right. And I'm sure now all the people who peddled the rabbit hole theory are going to, you know, recant and apologize and, <laughs> and publish retractions, right? Surely that's going to happen next week, right? No, they don't. Like um, that that um, documentary, the Tristan Harris one, The Social Dilemma, I remember it now. Um, that was like really over the top. And some of the people that were being interviewed in the documentary had since like done studies or admitted that it doesn't exist anymore. But they didn't even correct that. It was still in a documentary and they didn't say anything about it when it went out. So I, All right. people aren't really doing that. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're calling out Tristan Harris for purposely excluding contradictory information that contradicts yeah. his, his thesis. Yeah. To be expected. Um, Often. But... Yeah. So, okay. Were there any interesting discrepancies between these groups in terms of favorable, you know, effects of the algorithm, like certain groups having more favorable dynamics in terms of, you know, recommendations or anything like that, that you found, or it was at all pretty much wash out. Uh, there was a slight advantage to for late night shows and partisan left compared to the other um, groups. They got more recommendations back to their own category. Other than Scientology and Ted talks. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, but what it's hard to say. What was the, to say overall, right? What was the percentage, like the average percentage of recommendations that go back to the um, the source category on the homepage? Um, on a video, about sixteen percent of um, recommendations went back to the same category in general, like across the board, if you average it out, it's about 16. If you average it out for all of the personas, it's about 16%. And on the homepage, there was more, I think it was about 34% on the homepage was back to your own category. Okay. So about 16 and about 34. So, um, all right. Unless you're Scientology, in which case a hundred percent of your videos go back to Scientology videos. Yeah. Although like Scientology is a channel. So hundred percent of the ch recommendations on the Scientology video go back to Scientology. But we didn't like have a Scientology persona. They probably wouldn't um, see the same thing. Oh, so oh, okay. if the Scientologists watched a TED Talk, they'd still get TED Talk recommendations. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. So it's not okay. Got it. Got it. So I'm I'm slightly comparing different figures from when you said 100 percent before to the 16 and 30 percent now. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. It does okay. get a bit complicated. So it's like an extra dimension. It was difficult to present. Like I would recommend having a look at that website that I linked you to. I did. I did have a look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are a few other kind of interesting related questions to all, all of this. And there are some observations you've had in the past, like obviously during the Trump era, 
you know, there was a lot of controversy and a lot of accusations about social media, you know, having biased moderation of policies. Obviously, Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter. Um, what did you find or did you find anything interesting related to Trump? I saw a tweet you had a, a while back saying that um, YouTube removing any footage of Trump talking about the Capitol riot or complaining about big tech, even if you're Associated Press, Sky News, The Sun or C-SPAN, CBS, it will be removed. Uh, tell us a little bit about like what does YouTube do in terms of just active suppression? Uh, what have you seen? And maybe with specific reference to Trump. I think with my memory's not that great, so I can't remember that one. But they do, um, they do really actively suppress certain topics. So they got pretty heavy-handed with QAnon and banned most of those channels, and they got quite heavy-handed during the pandemic um, with talking against vaccines and things like that, um, and with election misinformation, they got pretty heavy-handed with that as well. So they're not they're not they're not afraid to like ban channels or take down videos and give strikes, um, depending on the content. But I think I have an, a different take about Trump. I, I feel like some of this um, moral panic was caused by Trump being elected, and people were looking to try and find quote reasons why people voted for Trump, and the idea that it was uh, social media influencing people by leading them down, but like recommending them the wrong things that could be fixed and you could complain about it, um, jump them down and then have them mechanically change the algorithm and fix politics. Um, but that's definitely not the case. Right. They can, they can ban all those things. And the demand stays the same. I see, I see it like the content that you watch on the internet is largely like a demand side. Right. Right. So when they banned all the QAnon channels, um, I looked at uh, the amount of views that QAnon was getting on other platforms, other video platforms like Rumble and BitChute, and it was actually still increasing across all platforms during like the Capitol riots. So it was like when there's demand for a particular type of content, people will get it wherever they can. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of proportion when it comes to these different categories that you've, that you've looked at? Do you have a sense of, I'm just curious, like, is the partisan left much bigger than the partisan right on YouTube in terms of videos, in terms of total videos, in terms of view counts or in different metrics? Um, and maybe like, is the extreme left bigger or smaller than the extreme right? Give us some sense of proportion for what you found. Um, partisan right and partisan left in terms of like video views are about the same, almost exactly the same. But are the um, number of videos published about the same? No, so the right-wing ecosystems got much more channels. So it's like much more um, decentralized and a bit more a bit more scammy and less trustworthy, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then le left wing's much more institutionalized. So it's like much more like much fewer channels, most of them with like higher production quality and often involving like an organization rather than individuals. Right. So okay. it looks even, even though it's got the same amount of total views. Yeah, it looks quite different. Right. So it, the fact that they have the same number of total views, but the the right wing YouTube has many more creators, is that an indication of some imbalance or asymmetry in terms of 
like dominance of of the network yeah it's definitely asymmetrical but i think that um this dynamic existed like before youtube like it was like the small right wing like talk radio and like local radio stations with like right. small individuals running that and a bit lower production quality and less institutionalized and that like existed before youtube and just moved it just seems to be the same thing so there's no political bias in terms of the recommendation algorithm no it always comes out fairly even but when i looked at that um yeah okay okay if you looked at overall yeah right there's an interesting graph in your study where you compare youtube and voting essentially you you look at democrats and republicans living in a bubble and then you kind of use that to to think through the youtube recommendation bubbles could you explain that and kind of uh, back that out a bit yes yeah, so it's a, a new york times article using someone else's data and i was trying to look at um how bubbly it is living in america so they considered a bubble if a certain you had less than a certain percent i think it was around 20 percent. i can't remember the exact figure of um if there's less than 20 percent of people that voted for the opposite party within five miles of you you'd be um, considered living in a bubble so I, I i compared that visualization to the equivalent of the recommendations and most of the personas were somewhere in the middle of like a typical american so it was kind of a, a stretch, but I was trying to find some some realistic way of comparing because when you talk about how bubbly something is, it's really hard to know what that means without comparing it to something. Sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So I think another thing we should talk about, which is sort of interesting about your story is how you've managed to do this research over several years. And you've had different arrangements. I think you've done this independently for some months, I think just kind of funding yourself. I think you've had some you've had some partnerships with academics. Uh, I don't know anything about the background in terms of how all this was funded and the different partnerships. I know now you're working uh, with the Swift Center. And I'm just kind of curious, because, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of people in my audience in this community who are navigating their own kind of independent research tracks. So you strike me as someone who's actually been quite successful over many years now getting to focus on a deep and difficult research question that you've been passionately motivated to try to get a true answer on. And you've been able to navigate a few different relationships and opportunities to be able to do this work. So you've done a very good job of that. I would love to learn a little bit about that experience, you know, how you've done it. And maybe if you have, uh, you know, tips, tricks, or frameworks for other people in my audience, because, um, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people would like to know how to do this kind of research in the way that you've done it as an independent, but also partnering with different people in different ways. Um, most of the time I've just been completely self-funded. So, and full time on this, and that's how I can get it all done. Um, I guess the tip is live like well beneath your means when you're working full time, save up that money and then keep living cheaply while you, um, spend that on your project and, um, opportunities will come. So I had, like, I had a venture capital company hire me as like a co-founder for a project that used what I built. Uh, I did that for a little while, um, had like some differences, so I don't, don't work with them anymore, <laughs> but that was still, st still a good way to get money. It's like, totally. if you, if you built software rather than just doing pure research. 
I see. So there will be yeah. applications in in um, the industry. That's a and great I tried point. to get. I I applied for lots of grants, and so did my um, um, Anna Zaitsev, who I work with, with doing the research. She works at one of the universities. Um, she applied for grants as well. We didn't get anything, so we found it really hard to get grants. Right. But you made a really good point that when you first started doing this research, you weren't just researching, you built, you built a system, you built a tool that was collecting this data and it had a web page and it had a concept and you were passively collecting all this data in the background. So in a way you're building an asset while you're doing this research, an asset that could be utilized or sold or leveraged as a startup or whatever. So I think that's a great yeah. point. That's a great point. Cause that it sounds like that's what, that's the reason you were able to get that gig or relationship with, with the, that's right. the VCs and as I, a startup. I, mm -hmm. That's right. I also just remembered there was a few YouTubers that I've like given reports to about where they get recommendations from. And so I charge at least one of those. Oh, so that was a trickle of money like that. Um, interesting. Okay. So you're, you're basically finding ways that you can provide actionable insights from this data, selling some of that. You have, you know, VCs, yeah. VCs who want to build products on it. Right. And then how, how did this last? It wasn't one? like a, it wasn't a strategy. I was right. just building something of value. And then these things kind of came organically. You know, I wasn't part of a plan. Totally. It wasn't a plan, but it's still yeah. a, a good lesson that the point is you were building something concrete and specific that could have any number of different valuable applications, um, as you're doing the research. So I think that's a great point. Um, a lot of people who are kind of research driven, don't necessarily think in those terms. So I think, I think that's a great point and it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so now though, you've managed to land yourself into a nice uh, stable gig, continuing this research. Um, did you learn anything about how did that come about? Did you learn anything in your experience, you know, navigating to where you're at now, where you're working on this full time and, uh, sounds like you have a, a good working relationship. I'm actually not working on this research anymore. Oh, right. So, but you but, pivoted um, to something different. I mean, but my point is you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're working on your own independent research, but with a partnership, tell us a little bit about it and how, how you kind of, how that came about, how you managed to manifest that. So that was, um, through, um, a mutual on Twitter. So it's basically through networking on Twitter and, uh, basically pitching. So not being too embarrassed to actually mm. ask for jobs that don't exist that you want. Hmm. So, um, not being afraid to just, um, shoot your shot, put it out there with people that, you know, and it might just be the right time. And that's what you did and it worked. Yeah. So I noticed, um, yeah, one of my mutuals had started a nonprofit and they probably needed software. So I was like, this is what you could do with what you're doing with me. If I did the software. Right. Nice. Okay. That, that's anyway. great. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense that there's actually a lot of lessons there and you've done a great job uh, navigating this over, over the past several years and you've got to do really, really deep, you know, sophisticated research in a disinterested way. So I applaud that. And thanks for sharing some of those lessons. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I think Mark, um, I think you wanted to take issue with me on the ethics of shop, <laughs> on, on the ethics of shoplifting people, people who are new to the podcast, uh, might not remember a couple of years ago, I made a YouTube video talking about the ethics of shoplifting and I was a little bit younger then, you know, I was a little bit more filled with uh, piss and vinegar. Now I'm, now I'm an old man with a child and, uh, maybe, maybe I think differently now we'll see, we'll have this conversation, but I made the argument that 
you know, I thought shoplifting sp specifically from the self checkout kiosks um, was ethically acceptable. And I made a series of uh, arguments about why it's perfectly fine to shoplift from the self checkout checkout kiosks. And it basically had to do with the fact that these are, you know, these, these are non-human entities, right? These are, these are machines and the obligations we have to a machine checking whether or not we've paid for something is, is different than the obligations we have to humans doing it. That was kind of the core of, of, of my case. I kind of made a few specific arguments from there, yeah. but that's how I would summarize it. Um, and, and this is something you, th this has been gnawing at you for years, Mark, and you wanted to, you wanted to talk to me. About it. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was really triggered at the time for sure. Wow. And, um, but I don't think it's that one of your hottest takes. I know a lot of people, um, that are fine with this like quite moral people that like mm -hmm. might be vegetarian or like do other things for moral reasons, but don't see a problem with this. And I think, I think it comes mainly from like their large companies. It's really hard to see who's hurt by it, but I think people are hurt by it. And so that's the problem. So I have consequentialist reasons. Okay. So that, make um, the case. You shouldn't shoplift. Make the case then. At, um, when I go to the self-serve checkout, there was a period where they didn't make you weigh everything and they didn't limit how quickly you could put through each of the items. So you could get as quick as like a normal checkout out through the self-serve and without any lines. And it was, it was amazing, but now it's like 10 times slower because they weigh every single thing ah. because they were finding they were losing too much from people stealing that they've put in all of these restrictions on your self-serve checkout and checking your bags um that has just made it really inconvenient for everyone hmm. so me and my behavior a few years ago has now cost the world uh millions of utils and and the time wasted for people around the world that's yeah that's your main and argument that's right and every time the lady has to come over to check my bags i think of you yeah. <laughs> hmm. yeah that's 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 an interesting unintended consequence yeah I mean, it's interesting because I don't do that anymore, but I don't know if I'm being honest, it's not because I've somehow updated my, my ethics and I've, I've become, you know, different ethically. It's more of a sociological thing that like, as you get older, you know, the idea of like getting busted for something like that, it just feels a little bit more like cringe and, um, you know, your sense of shame changes a little bit with the life cycle, I think. And you generally become a little bit more conservative with the life cycle. And so I think these, these background variables over the past few years have, have taken up their toll on me and I no longer shoplift from self-checkout kiosks. Um, I'm really happy to hear that. That's good to hear. Yeah. There was, there was only one time I did it out of revenge, which was probably not good, but um, I had, I was at the local uh, grocery store one night and I forgot my wallet. I just want, I just, needed a couple things um or you know it wasn't even that there was something like there there was something weird i forget the, i forget the details whatever but it was like they should have let me they should have let me have the thing and pay for it some other way or something and i felt very slighted i felt uh, I, I asked to speak with the manager i was like i come here all the time i'm a loyal customer i'm good for it you know please let me uh let, let me come back with the money tomorrow or let me you know drive back in 10 minutes with the cash or whatever. Um, yeah, I forget yeah. what I, I forget what I said, some, something, and they were basically just, uh, you know, 
they were, they were, they were, they were stiffing me. They were, they were, uh, was this at a, like a large chain? Yeah. Yeah. I was at, at the, at the HEB that we have here in Austin. And, uh, so but there was this one night where I felt, I just felt, uh, aggrieved. I was very upset with them. And the next day I went and shoplifted from the self-checkout kiosk just to get back at that. That's just the one benefit. I think if, if it was like a small local place. Yeah they would have let you and they would have had the authority to, but a lot of these bigger ones, their policies and they can't actually do anything. Like, no, I know, but that's my, you. that's exactly my point. Like they're, they have yeah. no, they have, <laughs> these are completely inhuman. These are completely inhuman entities. And if I, if I want to walk out with something, uh, you know, I, I, it's like, it's like doing harm to, you know, a rock or doing harm to, you know, this chair yeah. in, in my room. And so but I still, I, I still go to the large places because they just have they actually have better produce and like the delis are better. Like almost everything about this more choice. I, I just like the bigger chains. Totally. Same, same. Yeah. So I no longer shoplift. You'll be happy to learn that. I, I hope you're very relieved. I, I no longer shop, shoplift, but again, it's mostly just cause I've got, I'm getting old and lazy and fearful and shame and, sh and shameful. And uh, I don't know that I, I don't know that I'm convinced that it's wrong. And the reason is you make a good case, but the thing with un unintended consequences is they often go both ways, right? So it's like, I could probably come up with some unintended consequences of not shoplifting from self-checkout kiosks. Um, I mean, you do bring up a good one of, of the time wasted. Um, but what about the consequences of everyone, everyone falling in line and obeying these like non-human rule systems? The unintended consequence of that is it signals to all the other corporations that they can get away with this kind of thing. And then they're going to institute uh, even more draconian, dystopian kind of, uh, you know, abuses of, of our autonomy and treating us more and more like sheeple. Uh, so the counterfactual would be, sure, I, call, I do some shoplifting and people have to waste time. But if we, we don't have some, you know, righteous uh, disobedience against the self-checkout kiosks, then we're just going to have more and more uh, kind of oppressive, inhuman exploitation systems. What do you think about that? I think it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I think in, in general, like um, like high trust societies are built on people sticking to the word, not lying and not stealing. And you can have really nice things, like the whole system works better because you have to constantly enforce it, which creates all these friction around transactions and issues with trust that um, actually just makes everything worse. So I think, I think it's one good thing, a really intangible thing about places that are really good to live uh, because um, there's like high trust. Yeah, see, I agree with that. But the trust is only one way with these big corporations, right? And that's, that's the problem, right? So it's like uh, by me refusing to shoplift from the self-checkout kiosk, that's me investing high trust into my community. But then when I just want to, you know, take one little thing on credit for one night, the store offers me no trust whatsoever. They have absolutely no trust no. in me. And so that's my point. So I, I'm, a, I'm all for high trust, like high trust societies, but these institutions are not uh, the sources of that trust. They're not giving that trust. They're purely exploiting it and, 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 and sucking it dry. Well, when they, when they weren't weighing your items as you scanned it, that's a form of like trust. It's like, we're not gonna, we, we think you're good for it. Mm -hmm generally right and so that's them like trusting you and then they got burnt by us <laughs> taking too much right well i okay i would argue that because people don't shoplift enough from these self-checkout kiosks 
That's why we had the fiasco with COVID. And they thought everyone was just going to fall in line. They thought the public health authorities could just say, here's what you do. Everyone trust it. Be a good citizen. Be a high trust citizen, Mark. Be a high trust citizen and just do it. <laughs> do what the public health authorities tell you. They all thought that that's how it was going to work. And it didn't. But that was an unintended consequence of everyone until then, you know, obeying these insulting, dystopian, machinic processes that we are subjected to in our grocery stores. Yeah, that is true. It made it um, like Australia's fairly high trust and we, they were able to enforce that really strict lockdowns yeah, mm. quite easily right. because people just did what they were told. Yeah, that's right. There are costs to high trust, um, but it's an interesting perspective and I, I think that's an interesting argument. So I, I thank you for uh, bringing up a, a uh, old school reference in the, the other life lore. Appreciate that. Um, okay. Well, I wonder if there's just kind of anything else we talked about that um, is in, of interest to you in, in having done all this research. I mean, one question that might, you know, be somewhat related, but it's a bit of a tangent is like, how do you feel about other narratives relating to things like YouTube and the internet? Uh, popular narratives include like Nicholas Carr's narrative about the shallows uh, makes everyone just kind of dumb and stupid and ruins attention spans. You can kind of riff on a bunch of different popular, you know, conventional wisdoms right now about how some internet thing is bad for you. Are you also skeptical of a lot of those narratives? Do, do, do you think that, um, are, are there any other narratives like that, that you think are kind of overrated or, um, no, I think are... I write that. I, I, I kind of agree. It's, there's something about, um, watching YouTube. It's very passive. And especially like, um, even if you're looking at um, politics and science, like nonfiction type stuff that seems educational, it's still more like um, shallow and emotive than you would get from reading someone's book on the same topic. And you might spend like longer on YouTube, like listening to people go around circles for a long time or different opinions about it and never get any depth or never have your own thinking because you don't really have like, as opposed to reading, you have time to have your own thoughts if, if you keep following along. So I feel like as a medium, it's a bit, it's a bit more emotional and less deep. So I think if like video was to become like much more prominent compared to written word, I think that would be a problem. Yeah. Just a minor one though. I don't think it's a huge thing. It's just a small name. Right. Right. And, and do you have intuitions about other social media platforms when it comes to this radicalization effect or this bubble bubble phenomenon? Like, um, do your lessons about YouTube apply to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or where, or where does it not apply? Or you may or may not have intuitions about this. Yeah, I really don't know. I think TikTok would be an interesting thing to study because it, it gets really, I've noticed like it picked what I wanted pretty quick. And sometimes it's like, um, I was surprised that I was responding to some of the things that were showing me. And that's kind of on reflection. It's like, well, it knows a bit more about me than I knew before. So you like, you learn about your own preferences. Right, right. Did you look, you probably didn't look at all at the YouTube shorts, right? And it seems like every platform now has these vertical shorts, like copying TikTok, basically. No, they came in like after we started, so I didn't look at that at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting. Okay, cool, cool. Well, I'm going to put a link to your paper 
in the show notes. I think the actual paper itself is not out yet, right? It's like this nice, uh, you know, visualization study you have on transparency.tube. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, and the paper, I guess, will come out soon enough. It's out. It's being published. I'll, I'll give you a link and you can put it in, in there. Oh, great. I'll put a link to that as well. I, I couldn't find it when I searched for it, but I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, so everyone, I, I think this is pretty much the definitive nail in the coffin for the rabbit hole theory or the radicalization theory about YouTube. Um, it's not real. Uh, Mark has shown it. And we'll see if all of those people retract their statements in the next week or so after, <laughs> after, after listening to the Other Life podcast. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. Thanks for coming on. Good, good talking with you. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the work you're doing. And like I said, I think you're a really good example of someone who's been able to navigate independent research for many years now to do really important, disinterested, patient work. So uh, my hat's off to you, Mark. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.